Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has slow walked all the way through Inferno and into Purgatorio, the second canticle of Dante's masterwork comedy. If you wonder why it's not called the Divine Comedy, <laughs> you need to go back and catch up with Inferno. But we are here at Cantos 6 through 8 of Purgatorio, and we're going to do as we always do. In Purgatorio, we have been reading the Cantos we have been studying first, straight through, a read-through to get the lay of the land, the scope of the plot, the arc of the narrative, because Purgatorio is so much more difficult than Inferno. Trust me, you'll know that now. Because <laughs> we are now at, as I said, Cantos 6 through 8, and these are some tough bits. We're going to have to spend some time picking these things apart in the episodes ahead. But for now, we're just going to read it straight through. You cannot find this translation at this moment anywhere. It's not on my website. When it gets broken up into smaller segments, that's when you'll be able to find these English translations, my English translations, on my website, markscarborough.com. But for now, I just want you to sit back and listen to this bit, which leads us up to the gate of Purgatory itself. Let's just do a rehearsal of where we've been. Dante and Virgil emerged right at the moment when the night was ending, just at the cusp of dawn. There they saw the stars. They saw the sun just starting to rise. Cato appeared. Cato told Virgil to take Dante down to the edge of the mountain, clean him up with a reed. That happened. Then they saw an angel arrive in a boat with all these souls that came from near the Tiber in Italy where they gathered to come to Purgatorio. They got out. They recognized a poet, perhaps, or a musician, perhaps, who Dante knows, Casella. Casella started to sing one of Dante's own poems, and Cato reappeared, shoot them off, and then we met a series of people. The excommunicated, including Manfred, the last of the Hohenstaufen emperors of Sicily, that kind of final gasp of the Holy Roman Empire in Sicily. After that, we saw those who were so lazy, they only repented at the very end of their life, including the very enigmatic figure, Balacqua. And then we saw those on our first ledge, along with those indolent souls, those who had died violently. And we just came off three of them, Jacopo da Cassero, Buonconte da Montefeltro, and finally, La Pia. And now we are ready to move on. So, without any sound effects, any voices, no funny stuff whatsoever, sit back and listen to this longish reading of Purgatorio, Cantos 6 through 8, in my English translation. When everyone takes their leave from a game of dice, the one who lost makes himself miserable by going over all the turns of the game, learning through his sorrow. Meanwhile, the others surround the guy who won. One goes in front, another takes hold of him from behind, and someone at his side makes himself known. The winner doesn't stop. He listens to this one and that. He even offers his hand to some of them so that he can disappear into the crowd, such as the way I was in that great 
press of people, turning my face first to this one, then to another, making my promises so I could get rid of them. Among them was the Arentine who met his death with the armaments of the fierce Gino di Taco, and another who drowned as he raced away from the chase, and with his hand stretched out in a plea was Frederico Novello, as well as the guy from Pisa, who made the good Marzucco appear quite strong. I saw Count Orso, as well as that soul divided from his body out of spite and envy, as he said, and not because he'd committed any crime. I mean to say Pierre de la Brosse. And I pray she takes care of that lady of Brabant while she's still among the living so that she doesn't end up in a worse flock. The moment I got free from all those souls who prayed that others might pray for them so that they could make quick progress to their sanctified state, I began to say, it appears you held back from me, O oh my light Virgil, in a certain passage, the full proof that prayers can change the decrees of heaven. These people pray for that alone. Will their hopes here prove mere vanity, or are your words not fully clear to me? And Virgil, to me, my writing is straightforward. Their hopes are not false. If you look at the case with a cleansed mind, that is to say, the height of justice is not brought down if the fire of love in an instant accomplishes what those who remain here must satisfy. And in the textual spot where I made this point, the fault could not be rectified by prayer because that prayer could never reach God. In truth, don't bother yourself with such questions until she speaks to you, so that then the light will be placed between truth and your intellect. I'm not sure you get it. I'm talking about Beatrice. You will see her up top, way up on the summit of this mountain, laughing and happy. And I replied, my liege, let's go a little faster, because I'm not as tired as I formerly was. Look, the hill has already started to cast a shadow. We're going to keep going for the rest of this day, he responded, making our way until we can't anymore. But the facts and the shape they take don't match up for you. Before you're finally up top, you'll see again the one that gets hidden by this slope, whose rays you might no longer interrupt. But look at that soul over there, sitting all alone, with his gaze turned toward us. That one will tell us about the fastest route. We came up to him. Oh, Lombard soul, how you bore yourself so straight and disdainful. In your eyes I could see such honor and quiet. That one didn't speak a word to us, but he let us approach simply as if he were watching us like a lion in its still repose. In any event, Virgil stepped up to him, asking that he tell us the best ascent. To this request, he didn't utter a word, but instead ask about our country and what life we'd had there. My sweet guide had no sooner said Mantua, when that shade, who'd seemed so aloof, jumped up from his spot and cried out, Oh, Mantuan, I am Sordello, from your own country. And the one embraced the other. 
Ah, servile Italy, hotel of sorrows, a ship without a pilot in a great storm, not a lady in her lands, but a mere whorehouse. This noble soul was so excited at the sweet sound of his city's name to welcome his fellow citizen there. The ones who live in you, Italy, are now stuck in a spot where war never ends. One and another gnaw at each other, even if you're both lost in a walled prison or in a moat. Search, miserable worm, all along the shores of your sea. Look within yourself to see if there's a single part of you that knows peace. What good did it do that Justinian repaired the saddle if it's empty? Without that, at least your shame would be less. Ah, you people who should remain loyal and let Caesar sit in that saddle, if you understood well what God has written to you. Look how horribly nasty this beast has become because it hasn't been corrected by any spurs since you took the reins into your hands. Oh, Albert, you've abandoned her now that she's become untamed and savage, but you should get up in her stirrups. May a just judgment fall from the stars down onto your blood, and may it be so new and clear that your successor will live in constant fear of it. Both you and your father were detained by greed in a far-off country, so that the garden of the empire is now a desert. Come to see the Montecchi and Capaletti, the Monaldi and the Filippeschi, men without help, the former already wretched and the latter loaded with dread. Come, cruel one, come and see the pressure on your nobles and heal their wounds, and then you'll see how dark Santa Fiora is. Come and see your Rome, who wails as a widow all alone, calling out night and day, My Caesar, why do you not accompany me? Come and see how your people so love each other that if such can't move you out of pity for us, then come out of shame over your reputation. And if I may ask, O Most High Jove, who was crucified here on earth for us, are your righteous eyes bent another direction at this moment? Or is there some preparation in the depths of your own counsel to do some good, which is altogether beyond our comprehension? For every city in Italy is full up with tyrants, and every idiot who comes along thinks he can become Marcellus. My Florence, well, may you be contented with this digression, since it doesn't touch you. Thanks to the work of your own people, many others have justice on their hearts, and they slow down before putting the arrow into the bow. But the people get the brunt of it in their mouths. Many refuse to bear the public burden, but your people respond without ever being even asked, crying out, I'll take it on. Now you might as well rejoice, for you have good reason to. You're rich, you're at peace, and you're ever so wise. If I speak the truth, the facts can't hide it. Athens and Lycidemon, which made the old laws and created the ordered civic life, gave the smallest tense on how to live the good life, at least when compared to you, who are so crafty that what you spin in October doesn't even last until the middle of November. How many times in recent memory have you changed your laws, your money, your political offices, your fashions to morph yourself into something else and renovate your members? After you reflected well, you'll see that you're like a sick woman who can't find any rest in her feather bed, but tries to ease her pain by tossing this way and that. 
After these honorable and easy greetings had been repeated three or four times, Sortello stepped back and said, You? Who are you? Before any souls worthy of ascending to God were directed toward this mountain, my bones were interred by Octavian. I am Virgil, and for no other fault did I lose heaven except for not having any faith. That was how my leader replied to that other soul. As a guy who suddenly sees something right in front of him, something that makes him marvel, believing it or not, saying all the while, it is. No, it isn't. So it was with this sordello. He bowed his forehead and walked back humbly to Virgil. He bent low to clasp him as an inferior would. Oh, glory of the Latins, he said, through whom our language showed what it was capable of. Oh, forever honor to the place I'm from. What merit or what grace lets me see you? If I'm worthy enough to hear you, tell me if you came from hell and which cloister did you get out of? Through all the circles of the kingdom of sorrow, Virgil replied to him, I have come to this very spot. The power of heaven set me in motion, and I come with it, not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. I lost the ability to see the high sun that you so desire and that I came to understand far too late. There's a place down there that's sad without torments, but only held in darkness, where the lamentations don't sound like wailings, but only like sighs. That's my spot, along with the innocent babies who got bit by the teeth of death long before they could be cleansed of human guilt. That's my spot, along with the ones who were not clothed in the three holy virtues, but who knew the other four without fault and followed them all. But if you know and can show us the way, then we can get to the place more quickly where purgatory has its true beginning. Sordello replied, We're not given a fixed spot here. I'm allowed to ascend and move about as far as I can go. I'll guide you along. But see now how the day is ending. It's not possible to ascend by night. We should be thinking about a decent place to rest. There's some souls sheltered over there to the right. If you consent, I'll lead you to them. You'll even find some delight in getting to know them. How can that be, came Virgil's response. If someone wanted to climb by night, would someone else stop him? Or would he be truly unable to climb? Good Sordello made a line in the ground with his finger and said, See, you can't even get across a line like this once the sun goes down, not because someone stops you from doing so, but the dark night in and of itself captures the will in helplessness. At nighttime, one can go back down and wander around without purpose on the slope as long as the horizon locks out any daylight. At that, with an astonished look, Virgil, my lord, said, Lead us to the spot where you say we can find some delight as we settle in for some rest. We went on a little ways from there. That's when I saw the mountain was carved out, just as the valleys carve out the mountains around here. The spirit of Sordello said, We'll head over there, where the slope turns into a sort of lap. There we'll wait for the new day to come. There was a sloping path not 
quite level, but not really difficult. That brought us right to the flank of the valley, where its outer edge was more than half cut off. Gold and fine silver, cochineal and white lead, gleaming and polished wood from India, even a new emerald the moment it's cut. If any of that were set in that valley... It would all be surpassed when it comes to the color by the flowers and grasses that grew in that spot as lesser is surpassed by greater. Nature had not only painted that spot, but it blended the sweet scents of a thousand fragrances into a single indistinguishable aroma that I had never experienced before. I saw singing Salve Regina and seated in the green grass with the flowers, the souls that I hadn't noticed when I had been outside that valley. Even before the setting sun goes down to its nest, the mantuan who had led us there began, don't ask me to go along as your guide among them. From this embankment, you'll better know their faces and what they've done than if you were seated among them down below. The one sitting up highest with the look of someone who has forgotten to do what he should have done and whose mouth doesn't move with the others in song was the Emperor Rudolph, who might have been able to salve the wounds that have led to the death of Italy, leaving her to be resurrected too late by another. That guy who has the look that he's comforting the emperor rules the land where the waters are born, that the Moldau takes to the Elba and the Elba to the sea. His name was Ottokar, and he was a better man in swaddling clothes than Wenceslas, his bearded son who feeds on luxury in complete indolence. The one with the nose that seems so narrow and is caught up in discussions with the one who has such a kindly face, died while fleeing, that is, while deflowering the lily. Check out that one over there, beating his chest, and see how that other one lets him rest his cheek in the palm of his hand. Those guys are the father and father-in-law who are the plague of France. They know his life was filled with vice and wicked too, which is why grief seems to run them through like a lance. The one who's so burly and singing along with the one who has such a manly nose was armored with every honor of valor. And if the one had succeeded him, the young kid sitting behind him, that worth would have been poured from one vessel to another. That sort of thing can't be said of other heirs. James and Frederick have their own kingdoms. Neither possesses any better breeding. Human worth rarely rises up branch by branch, and the one who bestows it does it on purpose, so it must be asked of him. My words apply both to that big-nosed guy and to the other one, that Peter, who sings with him, and who brought such sorrow to Apulia and Provence. In every way, the seed is inferior to the plant, so that Constance may boast more about her husband than Beatrice or Margaret may of theirs. See the king of the simple life sitting over there? That's Henry of England. True, his tree may well branch into better progeny, and lowest among them all, his eyes lifted up toward the light as he sits on the ground, is William the Marchese because of whom Alessandria and his war have brought as much sorrow as Monferrato and Canavese. It was the hour that turns the desire of the sailor toward home and intensifies the longing in his heart because of the day he told his loved ones goodbye, and the time 
that pierces the new pilgrim's heart with love. If he happens to hear a distant bell, that seems to cry in grief for the passing day. I started to hear much less from Sordello as I watched instead one of the souls rise up and gesture with his hand for us all to keep quiet. He joined his palms and raised them up, fixing his eyes across to the east, as if he were saying to God, I don't care about anything else. His mouth sang, Te lucis ante, and with such sweet notes, too, that I was moved out of my own self. Then the other so sweetly and devotedly followed him in that song until its very end, keeping their eyes fixed on the wheeling heavens above. At this point, reader, sharpen your eyes to the truth. The veil is here so very transparent that it's easy to pass inside of it. I saw this courteous army all gaze silently upward, full of hope, but pale and humble, too. And I saw exiting from above and coming down toward us two angels with two flaming swords, the blades broken off and the tips blunted. These angels were in robes that were as green as newborn leaves, which their green wings caused to flutter as they beat over them. One of them came to a spot a little above us, and the other came down onto the opposite embankment so that the people here were in the middle of them. I could see clearly their blonde heads, but my eyes were of no use when it came to their faces, as pure power always confounds our senses. Both of them came from Mary's bosom, Sordello said, to keep watch over the valley because of the serpent that is making its way here. Just then, I who didn't know which way it might come, whipped around and froze in fear, all quivering against those trusted shoulders. Sordello went on. Let's go down now among the great shades and speak with them. They'll be pleased to see you. I believe I'd only descended three steps and was just below when one of them stared at me as if he wished he could remember who I was. It was at the point of time when the air grew dark not so dark that it blocked to his eyes and my own what had been hidden before now. He moved toward me, and I toward him. Noble Judge Nino, how it pleased me when I saw that you weren't among the damned. No fair greeting was left out between us. Then he asked, How long ago did you come to the foot of the mountain over those far waters? Oh, I said to him, from the areas of all the sorrow, I only came this morning. I'm still in my original life, although by this journey, I gained the other. When they heard my full answer, both Sordelo and he recoiled from me like people who are suddenly lost. One of them turned to Virgil and the other turned toward someone seated above saying, Get up, Corrado, come and see what God in his grace has willed. Then he turned to me and said, because of the singular gratitude that you owe to the one who conceals his originary purposes in such deep waters that no one can get across them, when you will be over there, away from this expanding water, 
Tell my Giovanna to send along prayers for me to the place where the innocent have their prayers heard. I don't believe her mother loves me now. She stopped wearing white on her head, but in her misery, she'll long for it again. Because of her, it's easy to understand just how long love's fire can last in a woman if the eyes and the sense of touch don't rekindle it. The viper on the banner of the Milanese won't make her tomb look any more beautiful than the rooster of Galora would have done. As he said all this, his face was stamped with the aspect that shows in what great zeal the fire of indignation can burn in a heart. My eager eyes kept looking up and up toward heaven, toward that spot in the sky where the stars turn most slowly, just as the wheel turns closest to its axle. My guide said to me, son, what are you staring at? And I said to him, at those three little torches with which the pole down here is all lit up. And he said to me, those four bright stars which you saw this morning are now low down over there. These have risen where those others were. As he was speaking, Sordello pulled up close to us, saying, Behold our adversary. He pointed his finger where we should look. In that part, without an embankment in the little valley, there was a serpent, maybe even the one that gave Eve the bitter fruit. The evil streak came through the grass and flowers, turning its head from time to time and licking its back like a beast that grooms itself. I didn't see it. Nor am I able to tell just how those celestial hawks started to move, but I could see both clearly once they were in motion. When it heard those green wings split the air, the serpent fled. The angels whirled about and turned in their respective posts. The shade who had pulled up closer to the judge when the judge had called him hadn't at any moment during the battle taken his eyes off of me. May the lantern that leads you from the heights find all the fuel in your judgment to bring you up to the enameled summit, he began. If you've got true news to know about the Val di Magra or the parts around it, tell me about it. For I was once a great man there. I was called Corrado Malaspina, not the old man, but the one descended from him. I carried to my own kind the love that is purified here. Oh, I said to him, in that part of the world I've never set foot, but is there anywhere in all of Europe where it's not renowned? The fame that brings your house honor brings joy to its lords and to its region. Even those who haven't been there know about them. And so that I may continue on above, I give you my word that your people do not bring dishonor to the glory of their riches or of their swords. Through custom and nature, both your people, even if a wicked prince should pervert the world, will continue on the straight path and turn away from the bad road. And he, now go, for the sun won't lie down seven times in the bed of its zodiac that is straddled by the four legs of the ram before events will pound into your head this courteous opinion with nails much stronger than what you or even other men have used if the course of justice is delayed no longer. An incredibly difficult passage and I have to tell you just honestly that when I have taught the comedy before this is the point (laughs) in which students start dropping out of the class. This is 
a hard moment. We get that giant, long diatribe against Italy and Florence. We meet all kinds of people almost cursorily, one after the other, all of these noble rulers in this valley, all of those who died violent deaths at the front of this long passage. We just kind of get glimpses of tons of people. It's almost as if we're getting a crash course in Italian politics, Italian warfare, Italian injustices. It's all just crashing on top of us. And then this curious bit about a snake that comes into a valley. How can there be the serpent from Eden in a part of the afterlife that is full of those headed toward heaven? How is this possible? What's at stake here? Why do you think Dante put this snake here? Because we know that nothing can happen to any of these noble kings in this valley, nor to Dante, nor to Sordello, nor to Virgil. So what is the point of this whole episode? There's not anything truly at stake. We want to talk about that. What's going on? Why this symbolic reference? Why so much about limbo suddenly again? What does Virgil descend into this big discussion of limbo? What about limbo is sitting here? Is this a kind of limbo or is this a contrast to limbo? This is kind of a what do I say, a redeemed limbo that we're finding ourselves in. And finally, Sordello, of course, we want to talk endlessly about him because now, for the first time ever, we have a second guide. In fact, Sordello becomes the second, albeit minor, but the second guide of comedy. He takes them to this valley. So for a moment, Virgil is not the one leading and Sordello is leading. We're going to get more guides on down the road and the number of guides are going to proliferate in comedy. Most people think that Virgil is Dante's guide, true enough. If they've read enough, they might think that Virgil and Beatrice are Dante's guides. We're going to find there even more beyond Virgil and Beatrice. Here's our first instance of it. Sordello. We want to talk about who he is, how he enters the poem, why he enters at this point. He seems very removed from all of the political machinations that are going on and the giant diatribes, the prophetic pronouncements about Italy as this incredible hotbed of injustice. This is complicated stuff, stuff that stops the plot. We want to talk about that. Why does the plot come to a dead halt twice? We want to talk about the growing misogyny until we hit this bit with Nino the judge when he basically says women can't keep their love without, you know, sight and touch, which is a really despicable little passage in the middle of Purgatorio. We want to talk about that, how we've built to it, how Pia may contrast to it. It's all very interesting, and we're just leading up to Canto 9, which we didn't read in this episode, where we find the gate and the entrance to Purgatory proper. All that's ahead of us. So, to get there... You have to do what you do. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things. You know the millions of things you have to do. Thanks for being on the journey with me. Thanks for taking this walk. And now stick with me. This is a sticking point. This is a hard point. This is a point where people tend to leave the journey. Don't leave. We'll get through this. It's just difficult. And it's suddenly very specific to Dante and his moment. It seems very personal 
very vindictive and uh, almost as if you have to be in Dante's head or at least in Dante's moment in order to even understand what's going on here. And then the larger theological question of what in the world is a serpent doing in purgatory? All that's ahead of us on the podcast, Walking with Dante. I look forward to talking it through with you. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon. Thank you.